Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. Now listen, I want to tell you one of my favorite stories, and I heard this following illustration uh, from one of my favorite authors or biographers, really, David McAuliffe, right? And he shared about the winter of 1940 and 41, right before Pearl Harbor brought America into what would be World War II. He's talking about uh, the mail and how it arrived on the desk of a United States senator dealing, um, detailing about the waste and the, the profiteering that was coming from a new military camp going up in that particular uh, senator's home state. Right? That senator was Harry Truman. Right? In the, the first few months of his work, Truman was commonly known as the senator from Missouri, or better yet, the senator from Pendergast. Right? You may have heard that nickname for him. Right? T.J. Pendergast was a person, and he was a person who was known for being corrupt in the Kansas City political world, right? whose, whose political machine for him first selected Truman for public office. Right? So, so had Senator Truman been the go-along, get-along politician that the most of the Washington insiders had taken him for, he would have just let this disturbing letter that was detailing all this corruption and profiteering just kind of slide away, right? He wouldn't have done anything about it. But T.J. Pendergast, of all people, would go and give him some advice before this letter was received. And, and it was probably some of the best advice that he was given, that Truman had ever been given. Take a look at it, right? Work hard, keep your mouth shut, and answer your mail. Right? Now, Pendergast was hoping that Truman would just be his lackey in D.C., but Truman took that advice very literal and did some amazing things with it. Right? Truman, he did all three of these things. And at the time, the country was working to supply England in its desperate battle with Nazi Germany. But when he started reading his mail and he learned more and more about widespread waste and, and corruption in America's build-up and what President Roosevelt would call an arsenal of, of democracy, right? he became angry and angrier by what he read. So Truman decided to investigate the matter for himself. He got in a car and he drove around the country. He took a road trip all by himself. He drove an estimated 10,000 miles on the trip, taking two-lane roads as far south as Florida, it was recorded, through the Midwest and on into Michigan. He was visiting plants and military installations. He was taking notes on what he saw with his own eyes. He took no aides with him. He hired no planes. He visited no resorts or golf courses, and he stayed in no first-rate hotels. Now, David McCullough, right, continued by, by saying that and writing that what Truman saw was even worse than what was described to him in those letters. Right? He saw contractors uh, being paid cost plus, right? And so 
they would build things very cheaply, and they inflated the cost to begin with. He saw surplus equipment that was left out in the snow just to, to rust. There was no one owning uh, the controls, no one taking accountability. Right? He saw surplus workers with nothing to do, but they were still getting paid, so they would just sit around, play cards, uh, smoke a cigar, and then head home with a check in their pocket. Right? So, so Truman came back to Washington and reported his findings to President Roosevelt. No action was taken. And so the senator from Missouri made his own report to the Senate. And he reported what he had seen with his own eyes on this 10,000-mile trip. Right? And it was a bombshell of a report. Right? And it changed everything, not only for, for Truman, but for the country as a whole. It was a road trip that truly changed our nation. Right? The, uh, the Senate established what we become known as the Truman Committee, to look into waste and excess and profiteering in the war room, in the war department, in the war boom. And get this, right? The Truman Committee produced 50 reports over that time, exposing flaws, suggesting steps to shore up the American war effort. Truman's work saved the country almost $15 billion in the early 40s. And more importantly, untold, thousands and thousands of lives of the men and women who would soon be using those machines of war after America joined World War II. All right? And then there's one other thing that McCullough writes, the, the, the fun thing of this story. Harry Truman is not known today as the, the senator from Pendergast, right? the senator that Pendergast sent to D.C. to do his bidding, or even the, the senator from Missouri. Instead, he is known as one of the greatest presidents America has ever known. Let's, let's think about it like this, right? There are thousands of us here in Burke, all over Burke, all over Northern Virginia, thousands and thousands of us who are finding ourselves, if not in the biggest struggles of our lives, definitely one of the top few struggles of our lives, right? Struggles and difficulties and, and desires to change or to, to implement positive habits, just some challenges in our lives, right? There's just stuff. There's decisions. There's things, right? For example, uh, we're squashed with worry over, over financial struggles or, or personal debt or unemployment or, or underemployment, right? Political concerns, concerns over, over war, concerns over the national debt. Right? Rent and mortgages are just too high, right? You guys thought, yeah, I knew what I was thinking, all right? Now, in addition to all of that, a new presidential administration means more changes on the way, right? And just the way that we do daily life for those of us who live so close to the nation's capital, right? Military positions are beginning to relocate and transition orders are beginning to be handed out in all the different branches, right? Kids are getting older, right? Which for some of you is a good thing because that means they're closer to being out of the house, right? Some of us are having kids for the very first time, right? There are, like we said, there are habits that we want to instill into our lives, but we can't find the time or habits that we need to get rid of, but they, they hang on to us like, I don't know, like a monkey hangs onto a banana, right? And it just all, all adds up, right? It's good things, 
But it's difficult things. It's tough things, right? It's lean seasons. But it all adds up to a new way of life or some changes that we must implement, right? Naturally, we can call all of these situations that we find ourselves in just that. Lean times. Tough times. Difficult seasons, right? And it may apply to many areas of our lives, right? Relationships can hit hard times. Right? Grief can leave a person in emotional ruins, and disease can attack with the, the fury of an armed army. So long story short, take a look, right? If you face lean times, tough times, difficult decisions and choices, right? If you face those times, you better forge your life on something on which you can lean, right? It's a foundation issue, Right? By forging a relationship with God, forging our life on Him, you won't just survive these lean times or, or these tough choices or these difficult seasons. You will thrive during those times. And that's, that's our great hope as followers of Christ. Right? We will find victory even in a world of loss and decay. Right? In the current series that we are in, we are in the place of our story where God's people um, would, many would describe they're in that season, in that tough, lean, difficult season, right? We've, we've been looking from the beginning of Genesis, and we're going all the way to the end of the Bible, that 30,000-foot that view. And in the place that we are right now, God's chosen people, the Israelites that we've been talking about the last few weeks, are dealing with the same things that we're dealing with. Lean seasons, difficult situations, hard choices, uh, just weird things that are changing the way we do life. So let me review what is going on here for just a quick second. Right, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was completely conquered, like we've talked about, by the Babylonians. And the once glorious temple of, of Solomon was destroyed. It was just laid to rubble, right? When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they deported almost everyone from the city and from the region. For some 70 years, Jerusalem uh, was something of an Old West ghost town with like tumbleweeds drifting by. With the potential right, to end up like many ancient cities, completely forgotten except to, to history. Right? When the, the Jews were deported to Babylon, they began to make homes for themselves there. Right? They, they had to have a place to live. And so they started to, to settle down, and roots were starting to be planted. And many of them still followed the God of their fathers, but they just did it from Babylon, where they, they were, with no desire, no, no desire to return to the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land, the, the holy land. Right? Some of these, these faithful Jews were raised up to places of prominence in the governments which they were deported to. After some time, they earned the trust of those kings, right? right? People you might recognize, like Daniel, who we talked about last week, right? Men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These people became leaders in Babylon. Uh, Queen Esther, for example, which if you read in the story, which we still have copies of for your families, if you read it, the, the passages from the story, you read about Esther, and she was made queen in, in the courts of a, of a Persian king. Right? But after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they were given the opportunity to return to their homeland, to that promised land. Right? Out, out of some two or three million Jews deported from the land, 
only 50,000 decided to return to their homeland, the promised land. That's like 2% of them decided to return. But they did return, and in the days of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple and laid the spiritual foundation for Israel once again. You know how I remember who rebuilt the temple? It was Ezra who led the people, but it was Zerubbabel, right? If you read in the story, it was Zerubbabel who rebuilt the rubbable, right? All right, that's how you remember, all right? So if you read the story this week, Zerubbabel rebuilt the rubbable, right? The book of Nehemiah begins where we're going to be at today, 15 years after the book of Ezra ends, almost 100 years after the first captives came back to the promised land and some 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, right? After this, this long time, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in rubble, and at one point, they had tried to rebuild those walls. They tried, but they were stopped by their enemies, by the, the surrounding nations. They didn't want them to have a wall. A wall meant that they could protect themselves and, and that the enemies would, be, would have more trouble uh, if they wanted to take over, right? And so it was an obstacle that these Jewish people never thought that they could overcome. So things, right, this is where we are. Things were pointed in the right direction, right? But it felt like no one was moving, right? Everything was pointed in the right direction. Change was seen, but it just wasn't going anywhere, right? And then Nehemiah, right, he hears about this, right? This guy, Nehemiah, he hears about this. He hears about the struggle of the city, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats underneath you, in front of you, and you can take those with you. They are free for you to use if you're watching online and you want a Bible. Just let us know there in the comment section and we will mail you one. All right, so they are free. They're for you to use. They're easier to grab from the seats in front of you. Uh, but you can find Nehemiah in the Old Testament. You can also go to the free Foundry Burke app and click the Bible tab and it's pulled up there for you. It's also on the screen behind me. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Simply says this. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. <laughs> oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Keep your, keep your finger there. We'll be right back. All right, Nehemiah had just heard some terrible news. All that news that we had talked about, right? Terrible news about uh, where his people were from. It would be like someone coming up to me and saying, hey, Andrew, right? I know that you are, uh, your family is, your, your, your relatives from back in the day are from, from County Derry in Northern Ireland. Right? Andrew, I know that you're from County Derry, Northern Ireland, and I have some news for you. Right? I, I know you still have family living there, but I got something to tell you. The place is falling apart. Right? They, they might say there, there's no infrastructure. The, the city buildings are crumbling around everyone. The walls that are protecting everyone from, from, from the enemies, from invaders, are, are just falling to the wayside. It's pretty hopeless right now. Now, look, I've never lived in County Derry, Northern Ireland. I visited there, but I, 
I've never lived there, right? It's been generations since my family has lived there, but it would still kind of make me a little sad, right? I might go to the old Shabin and have some fish and chips and a pint in their honor, right? I would want to do everything that I could to help, right? But I have nothing invested, right? Right? And for Nehemiah, it was even more important than that, right? Because this is not just a place where his family was from generations ago, right? It was a place where God lived, the temple, right? The, the temple was there, and you could go to that temple, and you could be with God, and the walls protecting that temple, they weren't doing their job. So it was a big issue, right? It was a bigger issue for him than it would have been for me. There was no one there to protect the holy seat of God. And so we would be upset too, right? And in his response, I think we can learn a lot about living in the lean years, in the difficult seasons, in the the tough choices that we we have to make, the changes that we want to implement. I think we can learn a lot on how he responds. Look, this is what he did first. He prayed. He prayed. He prayed, right? In order to thrive. In order to take ground and forge ahead in tough seasons, in difficult seasons, in those lean years, we must begin by looking up. Right? We must begin by raising our heads up to the heavens by praying. You know, there's this, this old story. It's really funny. There's this old preacher story of this elderly couple who lived together in a nursing home. <laughs> All right? Though they had been married for 60 long years. This is great. Right? The relationship was filled with with constant arguments, just bickering back and forth, disagreements, shouting matches. Uh, The fights did not stop when they entered into the nursing home. They, in fact, got a little worse, right? The couple argued and fought and bickered from the time they got up in the morning until they fell on their bed at night to go to sleep. There was constant back and forth. And it became so bad. It became so bad that the nursing home administration uh, threatened to throw them out if they did not change their ways. And even though the couple could not agree on what to do, on what changes to make, uh, the, the wife finally said to her husband, I tell you what, Joe, let's, just, let's pray that one of us dies. <laughs> let's just pray that one of us kicks the bucket, and after the funeral is over, I'll go live with my sister. Listen. Prayer can change things, right? Prayer can change things. Listen, I know that's a silly story, but it proves my point. Take a look, right? You can do a lot of things after you pray, right? But you should not do anything before you pray, right? I mean, just watch the way that Nehemiah prayed. It is a combination of waiting, of proceeding carefully, and praying all at the same time, but also doing. There was also action. At the beginning of his story, he says he prayed and fasted for some days in verse 4 of that chapter 1. A little later on, he's with the king, and he actually prays as he's talking to the king. This was his window of opportunity before the king to save Jerusalem, and he took time to pray. And listen, this is, this is not a unique idea. To the believers in the, the New Testament city of Thessalonica, Paul had written this, 
um, in chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. He says, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. It's not a new idea, right? Pray continually, pray all the time. One commentary I read put it, put it this way. It says, there are few works that cannot be accompanied, right, with prayer. There are few indeed that cannot be preceded by prayer. There is none, none at all that would not profit by prayer. Any challenge we face, any difficult decision we face, any tension that is in our lives, any, any lean time that we're going through, isn't there, right? There isn't a thing that wouldn't benefit from prayer. Prayer should not only be the precursor to every big decision in those times, in those moments of life. It should be the ending to every moment of those difficult seasons. And it should be right smack dab in the middle of those difficult seasons and those lean times. Prayer is not a waste of time. It can fit in at any time. And that's what Nehemiah is showing us, right? Prayer is the game changer of every story in the Bible that we've read since we started this series and which we'll ever read through any sermon or biblical story from, the time, from this time until we, we leave this earth. Right? Moses was afraid to go into Egypt, and so he talked with God, right? right? David was literally running from Saul and not sure if God uh, would ever make him king. And so what did he do? He prayed. Right? Daniel, like we talked about last week, was literally thrown into a den full of furry, hungry lions, and he prayed. In the New Testament, Jesus is about to be taken and beaten and killed and quite frankly, he's not looking forward to it. And so, what did he do? He prayed. Paul was in prison, had some time on his hands, so he prayed. Stephen, the first man killed for his Christian faith, was literally being stoned to death. Stones flying at his head, and he prayed. Time and time again, prayer is the thing, the thing that changes something. Right? This book, the Bible, the, 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 the series that we're looking through is drenched with prayers of men and women like you and me who do not know what to do next, who are in difficult seasons, who are making difficult choices, who are in lean times. So we can't underestimate the, the power of prayer. So when you're nervous right before that big presentation or that phone call or the visit or whatever it might be, Pray. Look, right? This is what Nehemiah shows us. Breathe a prayer before you proceed, and even as you proceed, and when you've finished. Just a simple prayer. Prayer is honest and real. Like we said in our prayer series that we did a couple months ago, right prayer, right? Praying right, right prayer is just real prayer. It's honest prayer before God. Just an honest conversation, telling him what you think, what you feel, the questions that you have the doubts that you have, just being real with God. Listen, listen, Foundry Church. On the other side of this coin, there's no shortcuts. Right? You cannot go with an instant prayer, instant answer philosophy. Right? Just something to think about when we, when we talk about the power of prayer. Right? We're not in control of answered prayers. God is. So we got to honor God first. 
with the, the seriousness of, uh, of waiting before him, before uh, him and going to him and bowing low, even fasting, and then keep praying as we try to make those right decisions. Listen, the, the, the value of prayer cannot be overstated. Right, being alone, being alone with God, reflecting on Scripture and waiting on God is just priceless. Clarity, direction, power comes in those moments. That sitting down with the general before the battle. Right, understanding comes in those moments. Clarity of our mission right, and direction come in those moments. His intent becomes ours. We know which way to go, right? And we should not expect such priceless gifts like direction and clarity and purpose and understanding to come cheaply, right? You get to spend time, you gotta, you gotta spend time with God knee to knee, right? Sitting knee to knee with him, the, the, the general of our lives, the leader of our lives, right? Think of it like this. This is how I like to think of it, right? You, you cannot see the stars, right, when you're in the city. Right? You, you can't see the stars with all the, the street lights, all the house lights, all the, the garage lights or stadium lights, the shopping center lights, uh, night lights. They all get in the way, right? You've got to get out somewhere, right, a away from all the other lights and take your time to simply look up, right? Right, you got to let your eyes grow accustomed to the night sky. You'll begin to see more stars as you do that. More stars than you, you've ever imagined as long as you create the opportunity, as long as you, you slow down, you draw away and intentionally be still. A difficult thing to do in Northern Virginia where it's hustle, 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 right? But it's something we must. And prayer is like that. Right? You want to see the entire beautiful galaxy of God's uh, grace, of God's greatness. It will take prayer, and it will take a lot of it. It will take some silence in that prayer, too. It will take some waiting. Listen, that's the first thing we do. Right? And I'm passionate about prayer. That's why I got a little preachy there. All right? Prayer. All right? Prayer is the first thing. Right, the way that we thrive in tough seasons, difficult, lean uh, times of our lives. Right, prayer. And then the next thing we do is we start where you are. You start where you are. Right? You start where you are. You have to start where you're at in order to thrive, in order to forge ahead. Right? Did we catch Nehemiah's job description? I didn't read it, but maybe you saw it there as you were following along. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king, verse 11 of chapter 1. I was the cupbearer to the king. Listen, all work is honorable. And that was exactly what his job was. It was an honorable job. It was the kind of respect that you would give a person if you found out that he or she was in the, the secret service or something. They were charged with the job of protecting the president. Right? Nehemiah was charged with the job of protecting the king. This is the, the person who throws himself in front of the, the bullet or puts their, their life on the line. The person who tastes the wine, as in Nehemiah's case, before the king drinks it, just in case an assassin had poisoned it, right? right? So Nehemiah could have made excuses as to why he couldn't rebuild Jerusalem. 
He wasn't a Levite, right? Levites were in charge of the temple, right? He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't even a, a builder, right? He was a, a cupbearer, right? right? But like anyone who is called by God to a significant task, the feelings of inadequacy give away to the necessity of the moment. You can only start where you are, right? Hey, you can't wait until some distant day in the future to get the job done, for that distant day will always just be over the horizon. You have to start where you are, and then you have to do this, right? You have to seize the moment. You have to seize the moment, right? You have to dead poet society this thing, right? You got to, what is it, carpe diem, right? Right? Nehemiah prayed, he said in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, and he seized the moment. He carpe diemed it, right? Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me. It says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, and that was his job, right? I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be tr deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. Always start with that. How can I not be sad for the city which my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Let's forget the fact that the king's ancestors are the one that took him from and did all that. But the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, right, praying, I replied, if it pleases the king, and if, it, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judea to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone? Right? He doesn't want his cupbearer gone for too long because the guy likes wine. Right? When will you return? And he said this, after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Verse 7 I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judea. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's force, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Right, verse, verse 9. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letter to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Now first, right? This is, this is just a, this is the beginning of that process. But what is important is that the Bible mentioned the month where this was taking place. And why is that important? Well, that month shows us an important thing. Right? Nehemiah had been praying and preparing for this for four months. Four months he was preparing. From the end of chapter 1 to this point, it had been four months of Nehemiah waiting for the exact right moment to seize. Right? Waiting for the, the right moment to carpe diem. Right? He was praying and listening and planning and dreaming and making lists of what he needed for four months. And then when the opportunity arose, he seized the moment. Right? Nehemiah 
uh, was ready in part because his grief had motivated him. Nehemiah was ready in part because he'd spent much uh, time and energy in fasting and, and in prayer and waiting on the Lord, right? Waiting before the Lord in humility. And Nehemiah was ready because God made him ready. The door cracked open. And Nehemiah kicked it the rest of the way open. Nehemiah was ready to go through it because of prayer, because of that grief, because of that, that passion that God put on his heart, because God had made him ready. He was, he was sensitive to the possibility that God might be at work, so he had a razor-sharp focus that allowed him to seize the moment. <laughs> the king said, okay. And Nehemiah set the time, the place, and he let the king know everything he needed. Right? He wasn't afraid to make the ask. And then he was on his way. All right, just real quick, let's jump to the next chapter to see, or to the, to the next few verses to see what happens when Nehemiah arrived. Verses 11 through 16 says this. So I arrived in Jerusalem, right? Got there. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God put on my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley Instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. All right, verse 16 says this. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, and to the nobles or anyone else in the administration. All right, Nehemiah, and he sounds a lot like our man Truman, right? And doesn't he sound a lot like Truman here? With a hairy Truman-like determination, right? Nehemiah rode a, a donkey around the ruins of his beloved city at night with as few people as possible, and he took notes. And that is where we learn another thing, right? The last thing about how to thrive in difficult seasons and, and when we face tough choices or, or we're in lean times, right? And that is this, proceed slowly. Proceed slowly. We got to wait upon the Lord. He actually did this at the beginning too, right? Waited those four months, right? We got to wait upon the Lord. This is not some kind of, of spiritual procrastination. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, it is a careful study of the situation and of what needs to happen. That's what we're talking about, right? And most importantly, it's about seeing where God is leading, having the sensitivity to God's movement in our lives. And I get it, that goes against our tendencies, our natural tendencies, right? Usually there's a problem, let's fix it, right? Let's get to it, right? Let, let's repair it, let's fix it, let's get it done. But, but here's something that I've learned from having nieces and nephews, especially when they're like toddlers, and you guys probably know if you're parents or if you have nieces and nephews or little cousins or something, right? When there's a problem, they come running to you screaming and crying and just bawling and sometimes they're even hyperventilating what is the first thing that we usually tell them to do yeah, calm down right 
Uh, at least Christina does. She says, calm down, take a breath, right? Breathe, right? Calm down, shut up and get away, right? Go find your mom. Go find your mom, right? No. Calm down, take a breath, all right? All right, partly because we never can understand what they're saying, what they're talking about, right? But because it slows the world down. That's what we do, right? We, we, we try to slow it down for them so that they can manage it. And we take a few breaths. We talk about the situation. It, usually the situation can be solved with a, with a couple hugs and a kiss, right? But there's no way of knowing that until we slow them down. We catch our breath. Did you know that first responders, they don't run into a situation, right? They don't run into a situation. They always walk. They, they proceed slowly, like EMTs. They, you won't see them running. They're, they're proceeding slowly in order to observe and study the situation. Right? They, they make a plan. They, they, they're prioritizing as they're going into the situation. They're, they're prioritizing so that they can execute. Right? Right? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 says this, When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed, to the God of the heavens. Psalms chapter 33, verse 20 says this, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield, right? He is our, our hope and our help and our shield. Jesus once said it this way. It's recorded in Luke chapter 14, verse 28. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it. And again, Foundry Church, right? This is not about procrastination. It is about proceeding and about about making progress, but doing so carefully, right? Haste makes waste, as the old saying goes. And the tougher the times, the leaner the times, the, the more difficult decisions that we have to make that are in front of us, the more important it is to make correct moves, to move in the direction that God wants us to move, right? When tough times come, it is vitally important to make those choices in the correct manner, right? You don't need to rush into decisions. You do not need to take necessarily the first option offered to you, right? You make carefully thought out decisions and you lean hard on your wisdom and the wisdom of others, right? As we say around here at the Foundry, we step up to the table, with each other, with other soldiers in the kingdom of God, and we ask for input and support. We make a battle plan, and then we execute. And we, we move forward. We, we take a step of our, in our faith. We, we do what the Lord is asking us to do. Now let's, let's continue with our story, with Nehemiah. Right, when he came back, he made his report. He took hold of the problem. He took hold of the problem. He took ownership of the problem. He casted a vision, and he started a great process of change for his people. (laughs) A story that we're talking about thousands of years later. So like Harry Truman's road trip, Nehemiah's shorter journey changed his nation too. In addition to sparking the rebirth of that great city, Nehemiah landed a place in God's history. Right, as one of the heroes of the Bible. In other words, look, Nehemiah thrived in the midst of difficult times. He didn't just survive. He didn't just get through. He didn't just wait it out. He thrived. He took ground. 
those of us who are forging our life on God, who have that desire to live a life that is all about him and for his glory and honor, that's the same mindset we need. We need to thrive in difficult seasons. Not just get by, but thrive. While all those around him, or all those around Nehemiah seem to be satisfied with just surviving, just getting by and making do, Nehemiah excelled. He thrived. He was, he was the Bible's version of Harry Truman, or Harry Truman was the version of Nehemiah. Right? But thankfully, the buck didn't stop there. Right? The Truman joke. It continues on right to this moment. And you and I have the same opportunity to thrive in tough times, in lean seasons, and in difficult choices and challenges. Right? Maybe you're dealing with that important financial decision or a career move or uh, you're a, a high school or senior deciding on a plan for the future and maybe it's about a key medical decision or even a struggle whether or not to get married, right? Most of those decisions don't sound like tough times, but they are tough decisions. Tough. Or lean times in society just make those decisions even more important. Right? These, these decisions are are too important to make a mistake. Right, so if we're facing, right, if we're facing lean times, this is what we got to do. We got to start with prayer, like we talked about. Right? We got to start where we are. We got to seize the moment. We got to carpe diem, dead poet society at all. Right? And then we got to proceed slowly. We got to not procrastinate. We got to prioritize, evaluate, prioritize, and execute. Right? That's what we mean. Lean times don't mean that God is not working. Difficult seasons don't mean that God is not working. Tough choices doesn't mean that God isn't speaking to you and directing your steps, right? God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of about three of them, if we're lucky, all right? These tough choices, these lean times don't mean the end of times. We just have to wait to see what God is up to, right? I mean, just, just look at the Bible, right? The, the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians in the New Testament shows us that we may find yourself in, in prison and God may be advancing the gospel among the guards and making the, 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 the free uh, brothers be bold, right? We, we see that with Paul in his writing. In the book of John, we learn about two sisters who have a, a dead brother that Jesus can heal, right? But God was just preparing to show his glory as he waited to make that healing process work. Right, we look back at Genesis and, and we read the story of Joseph who found himself sold into slavery, accused falsely of, of sexual abuse. One of the stories that we talked about here uh, on Sunday from our readings and he was forgotten in a prison cell and all this happened so that God could prepare him to rule a nation. Right? In, the, in the book of Ruth, we see a woman who had to walk through famine, be driven from her homeland. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And she was left desolate and with one other foreign daughter-in-law. But God was making her the 34th great-grandma to Jesus. He's always working. Right? We could go on and on, story after story of, of men and women who found themselves in tough times and difficult seasons and lean times, but they prayed, right? they, they, they seized the moment, right? they, they, they proceeded slowly, and they found God to be faithful in the crisis. 
start where you are. You seize the moment. We see God faithful. We see his work in our lives. Stanley Green, one of my other favorite authors, or one of my authors that I read a lot, he writes about a, a woman who, who illustrates this perfectly. It's a, a South African woman who stood in an emotionally charged courtroom uh, listening to this, this police officer acknowledge the atrocities that they had uh, perpetuated in the name of apartheid. The officer that uh, was on trial was Officer Van de Broek, and he acknowledged very openly his responsibility in the death of her son. Uh, along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the other officers partied, he said, while they burned his body, turning it over and over uh, on the fire until it was re reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Van de Broek and other officers uh, arrived to seize this same lady's husband. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, Van de Broek came to fetch the woman who, who took her to, and he took her to a woodpile where her husband uh, lay bound on top of it. She was forced to watch as Van Broek poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed her husband. The last words that she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now, Van de Broek stood before her awaiting judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation, uh, Reconciliation Commission asked her what she would want. And this is what she said. She says, I want three things. She said it very calmly. I want Mr. Van de Broek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. And that's the first thing she wanted. The second thing she said is, I want Mr. Van de Broek to know that he took all of my family away from me. All of my family is dead, but I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I would like for him to come to my home and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. That was the second thing she asked. The third thing, she says, I would like Mr. Van de Broek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like someone to lead me to where he is seated so I can embrace him and know and let him know that he has true forgiveness. So as a, an elderly, elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Van de Broek, he fainted. He was overwhelmed with this act of grace. Someone began singing Amazing Grace, and gradually everyone joined in. This woman understood, right? This woman understood that to be reconciled with God and to be reconciled with neighbors and enemies is to be free indeed. And when we have things that are holding us down, when we have choices, decisions, tough times, difficult uh, things, right? We can be free, free indeed as well, right? Because of, of prayer, because of of seeking God because of, of just seizing the moment. Seizing what His Spirit is doing in our lives. We can experience a greater grace than even Mr. Van de Broek experienced. So as we stand and as we continue to worship, let's remember that. 